to me, like if you're an entrepreneur, you better believe that sales is the most noble thing you could ever do in life. And I do. I think sales is about truly understanding and caring about your customer's problem more than anything else. Welcome to Lawagon Live. Today we're listening to Andy Morrow, co-founder and CEO of Automat. Andy worked on some of the first speech recognition software ever made. Since then, he lives and breathes conversational marketing, and today he is one of the most respected entrepreneurs in conversational AI. He is the co-founder of Automat, a marketing cloud platform that uses AI to allow companies to have personalized one-to-one messaging conversations with their customers to better understand and serve them. He shared us his vision on AI, marketing, and entrepreneurship. This is one you won't want to miss, so, so keep listening. The very quick version of this is I'm a computer scientist by background, so I was trained. I'm from Manitoba. Um, I've been here like 17 years, but I went to school out there. I kind of went to, I know I'm looking at this and everyone said, hey, bunch of like entrepreneurs in the room, right? Like you guys all want to be entrepreneurs someday. So this is all I'm going to tell I'm like, I like it when I meet people and their background sucks because then you're like, oh, I can do that. I went to the University of Manitoba. That's cool. It's great. I liked it. If they're listening, they're not. But it's like, it's not a good school, right? Like nobody knows that school. It's not MIT. It's not even the schools out here. So I went to a nothing school. I got a bachelor's degree. I did okay, right? But, um, and then I went and I worked at Nortel for a couple years and then they were imploding. How many people here even know Nortel? That's so crazy. I'm so old. Um, <laughs> So they were the Shopify of their day because Canada can only have one unicorn at a time, it seems, right? Um, which is lame. Then they were the Blackberry of their day and now the Shopify. So they imploded um, and uh, I said they wanted to move everyone to Ottawa, but I did all my uh, internships in Ottawa and I said, no freaking way. I said, moving to Montreal, that actually seems cooler. And so they moved me to Montreal and the story was uh, I was on Nuns Island and I was at Nortel and all my friends were like leaving the building like every day. I'm like, where are you going? They're like, this startup. And I was like, this is like 99. Like how many of you are not even born in 99? Anyway. Um, and so I was like, where are you going? And I'm like, this startup. I'm like, ooh, that sounds fun. Startups, right? And this is like before 2000, like just dot com death. And so um, it was pretty exciting. You heard all this stuff and it's like, ooh, startup. It was way before startups were cool. They were just starting to get cool. And so I went over to this startup called Nuance, which now is like 10,000 people, but at the time was like around 200, which wasn't much of a startup to be honest, but at the time was. And so, and then I spent 15 years there. Like this is not an entrepreneurial story at all, right? And so I spent 15 years there and I got an inside seat to making computers that you talk to, right? Like I really, this was the first, Nuance was the first company to commercialize speech recognition and computers you talk to, what we might now call conversational AI. And so I got to see tons of facets of that. And then um, I got this opportunity to create this startup after 15 years there. And that's Automat, and um, that's the last three years. I also have to apologize for this photo. I always say like, I'm like a bad Tinder date. Um, <laughs> It's so bad. Um, is it going to be behind me the whole time? Because that's like horrible. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, so that's 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 it. We'll get into the detail on that, I assume. But very, very, very interesting. Um, my next question is about uh, softwares. I uh, read that you uh, built some exciting softwares and some of the first ones in terms of uh, phone systems. Can you give us more details about the early software you built? Yeah, so I, when I give talks sometimes, I, I tell people, I'm like, I worked on some of the first commercial 
uh, over the phone speech recognition software. And when most of you hear that, you're like, oh, like Siri? I'm like, no, this was like 10 years before Siri. So there's these things, some of you have used them, which is you call the, I don't know, Bell Canada or something, and it goes, hi, how may I help you? And you're like, oh, fuck. And you're just like, can I swear on this thing? <laughs> Too late. Um, so zero, uh, you zero out, you're like, oh my God, like get me to a human, right? Like that stuff. They call it IVR, interactive voice response. It's like easily the top five most reviled consumer experiences of all time. So if by awesome software you mean that, yeah, that's, I'd spent a long time building that. But the thing was, is like, there's actually a lesson in all of this because th this was the first commercial, like speech recognition, tw like 15, 20 years ago, like this was cool stuff. Like it was, it would blow people's minds. But part of the challenge of it was, how do you take this technology that's really cool and actually build a business model out of it? And unfortunately, for a very long time, and it still exists, the business model was when someone calls to try and get help from another person because something is not working for them, let's send them to a dumb robot and hope they hang up. That's the business model. No one will tell you that, but that is the business model of all of that stuff, right? And so, um, and what it did is because it kind of seemed like they were trying to make it work, it allowed them to deal with the fact that people just went away. Like, they just went, ugh. And then they didn't have Twitter to go to for a really long time, so it wasn't that big a problem for companies. Um, so I worked on that. But the point of that was, is it was the first... So Siri came out of Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, right? SRI. Nuance came out of SRI, like, not quite 10 years before that. And so, you know, I got an inside seat. And, like, you got to understand, I was, like, a grunt programmer, right? Um, and, like hair up to here and sideburns and I look like a goof. I probably still look like a goof, but I really look like a goof then. And so I was like a grunt programmer with a, with a bachelor's degree, like coding Java. There was like nothing cooler, not uncooler, right? And, but I got an inside seat to the people who had created this and I, and I really fell in love with it. Like I dedicated my career to like, I just think like com computers you talk to, to is one of the coolest things you could ever work on, right? And so I really made use of that opportunity to really get in there and learn as much as I could about the art and science of building these systems. And we learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes. We built a lot of bad software, things that people hate. But that led to, you know, after about seven or eight years of building these phone-based speech recognition systems, I actually had built a team. I was in a company. I had some direct reports. I had the ability to go do something. And from there, I went off and built the first mobile voice assistant for companies. It was sort of a Siri for the enterprise. And like that sort of helped launch my career a little bit, was able to do that. And so I went from just learning in a company that on somebody else had built to actually being able to innovate, again, inside of a larger company. Um, but if I hadn't didn't done that, and if I wasn't at Nuance, and I didn't have those opportunities, I would have never... It's a very weird entrepreneur story, because most of you guys probably don't even want careers in companies, which I think is great. But there is a pathway to actually using companies as a place to learn and get good at something, and then use that expertise to actually use that as a jumping-off point to start a company. So, Very impressive. Um, so you have a company in artificial intelligence. Can you... Give us details about the beginnings of artificial intelligence and how it became what it is today. That's a really big question. Like the only thing I know anything about is conversational AI, right? I mean, a lot of the core tech now and algorithms and stuff that have come out, deep learning, reinforcement learning, that stuff is common. But the only thing I know anything about is conversational AI. And just to be clear, like I'm the co-founder and CEO, but I have a co-founder and head of research who I rely on because he's 10 times smarter about that stuff than I am, right? So what I would say is the following. So when I was at Nuance, 
and we needed to go build speech systems, you really couldn't do anything without dozens to hundreds of people. Like, you just couldn't do it, right? So the, the, the term for a lot of the work that we had to do is feature engineering. We would have to tell a computer, this means that, and this means that, and this means, and not even this means that, it would be like, what's important, right? Like, this is an important thing to look at computer, and this is an important thing to look at computer, and this is an important thing, and then here's what that is, and here's what that means. And it was super laborious, right? And so part of the reason that you can start a company in AI now with, you know, we have a, you know, the public, nice way to say it is I've got a 40% of my team have PhDs in my R&D team, but we're a 30-person company and that's not all R&D, so you guys can do the math, right? I've got a handful of PhDs in my company, all really smart people, but, you know, ten, five, even five years ago, you could not build an AI company with, you know, five PhDs. You just couldn't do it and, and have any sort of meaningful innovation because of deep learning and the current sort of machine learning, the way that machine learning is done now, you actually can do two things. One, you can actually legitimately innovate and build things that even big companies haven't built. And two, you can actually just get stuff done because you don't need to do all that feature engineering that you used to have to do back in the dark old days where you used to have to tell the computer everything. Like the biggest, like in a really dumb layman, completely incorrect technically, but actually factually correct is Deep learning basically means that the computer does a bunch of the work that you used to have to do and means that you can have smaller teams and build cool stuff in AI. That somebody's going to call me out on Facebook for that. That's how completely inaccurate it is, but it is kind of true. All right. Um, so what inspires you and what made you jump into entrepreneurship? This is the worst and most useless answer for like most of you guys, but then it's going to make you shake your head too which was I was at a company and uh, someone at Real Ventures, uh, Sam, if you know him, reached out and said, hey, you look interesting. Uh, we should have a talk. And I was really flattered. I was like, ooh, this like venture capitalist reached out to me. And uh, he was just kind of building his network and didn't think much of it, right? And then I met um, JS, who many of you know at Real Ventures, and he said, you're wasting your life. You should be an entrepreneur. And I went, wow, somebody who knows other entrepreneurs thinks I could be an entrepreneur. This is like the worst story, right? Like, you want to hear... You had crazy belief and passion. You knew you could change the world. It's not true, though. Um, so, uh, and, and then I had other uh, mentors. One of my uh, mentors in the Bay Area, a guy named Gary Clayton, he had been telling me I've been wasting my life forever, but he also, he was a guy that in a larger company, for those of you that are employed, like I, this guy who was an amazing dude and a mentor to me found me and saw that there was something there. And I think the lesson in that for you guys is like mentors are so important. It is so hard to do what you're doing. It's so hard to get where you're getting. And I got really lucky because a few people said you're wasting your life, which really meant they believed that maybe I could do something else, right? And like I was an old dude, this is like stuff that should happen to 23 year olds, but whatever, um, I'll take it. So that, that happened, right? I got really lucky and basically uh, the true honest story of this whole thing is that we we uh, were going to start a company. The Gary was going to start a company. He said, I want you to be my CTO. I was like, great. And this kind of, he walked me to the ledge. I think he actually, Machiavellianly, if that's a word, actually tricked me and said, we're going to start a company together. You're going to be the CTO. I said, great. And then he made me do all the work and I developed everything and we went and talked. He had great connections to Bay Area VCs and so we were like going to meet Kosla. Like I think the first VC I ever pitched was Kosla, which is, don't do that. Go to other better, worse VCs than Kosla the first time you pitch. And, and, uh, and then about two months into it, he said, I really like what you're doing with it, but I'm not really feeling it, so I'm out. And I was like, oh my God. I was like so bummed out, right? Because I was like one foot out the door now. It was like a big deal to leave this company after 15 years, really secure. And, uh, and then 
I had this like brain fart on a plane. I was on the plane in, from Toronto to Montreal, and I texted him. I said, hey, crazy idea. What if I'm the CEO? And he goes, interesting. And then I landed in Montreal, and like an idiot, I'm like, I text him, and then I'm like reading my book or whatever, right? Like not even thinking about it. And I land, and literally I get a text message, an email, and my phone rings like while I'm getting off the plane, and it's from this VC, John Acapinti at Relay Ventures. And he says, interesting idea, tell me about it. And so now I'm like pitching this dude at Trudeau, like with my luggage, and I walked around Trudeau for like an hour on the phone, right? And, and then I got off the, and he said, when can you get me a deck? And I'm like, Monday, it was Friday, right? Or I said, Sunday, and it was Friday. And was, I called my two co-founders, who I'd already been planning on trying to hire into this new thing, and said, you guys can come to my house tomorrow. And it's like 7 p.m. on Friday, so they're there at like 8 a.m. on Saturday, and we're whiteboarding, and we design the company and the product, all of which is like bullshit, by the way. Like, it, it, none of it got used. But at the time, we were like super, well, this, is, this is the company, this is awesome. And then we sent the guy a pitch. I stayed up all night. It was like a 20-hour day and sent the guy a pitch deck on Sunday. And then a Monday, one week later, I was in Toronto because Relay Ventures is both Sand Hill Road and Toronto. They're split U.S. and Canada. So a week after that, I was in, in Toronto pitching Relay Ventures, and I got my term sheet. And so, I don't know, it's like, I don't think it's a replicable story unless you want to get old and work at one company for 15 years and make some good friends. So it might not be useful to you, but that's actually what happened. Interesting story. Um, how would you explain intelligence, artificial intelligence and machine learning to a 10 years old? I think I already did it, didn't I? I was like, um, I really do think it's the, the, big, the big thing that's happened in the last few years is the data plus this algorithm does all the work, or it does a lot of the work now. And so I, I think, like, I, some, I have this one slide when I sometimes try to describe it to people. And I'm like, in the old days, you'd have a picture of a dog, right? Or a cat, I guess it's the internet, cat, right? And you'd have like this, you'd have to tell the computer, this vaguely circular thing is its face. And these two little triangular things up top are its ears. And these little lines coming off of it are whiskers. And then you'd be like this kind of oblong thing is its body. And then this kind of skinny curved rectangular thing is its tail and like these vertically aligned little oblong things are legs, right? Like you'd literally have to tell it all those things. And then what would happen is, and then that would kind of work for a dog because a dog is almost the same thing. But then the second a kangaroo comes in, you're like, oh, you're screwed, right? Like the tail's weird and lumpy and it stands upright and it's not horizontal, does have four legs, has trying, it's like screws. And then you put a shark in there and you're just like, ah, Get the hell out of here. Like, I'm not doing this, right? And every single time, you had to get somebody to come in and tell the computer what all those things meant. And so it just wasn't possible. Like, look at these chairs. They don't have four legs, but they look just like chairs that have four legs, right? These have four legs, but there were, it's too much work to label all the data. And now what happens is you just throw the photos of dogs and the photos of cats and the photos of kangaroos and the photos of sharks and chairs and whatever, and the machine figures out what's important, and it turns out that the machine figures out way more things that are important than we do. It doesn't just look at the obvious features like humans do of triangular ears or four legs or whatever. So it finds out way more things. It's way better at characterizing the core features of what it's trying to uh, understand. And so as a result of that, we end up now focusing on harder problems that aren't just classification or, or core prediction problems. I don't know if that's a good answer or not. But it's, the, the point is, is that's, that is fundamentally what the last few years of you know, leading up with Bengio and the deep learning you know, mafia, I don't know if they call them that, but all those guys you know, have, they legitimately, I think they're all going to win Nobel Prizes one day because I think it was a legitimate, serious invention that has unlocked everyone to move beyond all of that core feature engineering and do 
harder things now. And now you see a lot of innovation at the margin of all of that where people are doing different things. Richard Socher, who's the chief scientist of Salesforce, is an investor and advisor in our company. And like he says something that I really like, which is everyone just says it's a data game, but he's like, it's not true. Like there's tons of invention at the algorithmic edge and and combining pipelines of open source libraries or a lot of times nobody has coded the paper. The new paper that's a big deal, nobody's coded it and coding it is actually hard. So I actually think this meme that it's data is the new oil, it's true, but you actually also need to build the rocket ship, you know, whatever the algorithm is for the for the for the the analogy is for the algorithms but i think though that's still a lot of important work to be done there cool answer um so your company industry is uh, conversational marketing can you explain how you use ai to deliver value to your customers so how basically ai a big part of what you do yeah so Here's the way I think about conversational marketing. By the way, that's another thing. Like we invented this term. I'm a big fan of, um, you know, what people call category sort of thinking, category creation. So you sort of come up with a name of something, and and then you go out and you kind of own that category. And I should have done my homework better because conversational marketing was used like 12 years ago for email marketing, and so. But I think it went away because it wasn't very conversational, right? And um, here's here's the way that I think about it is. This might be a little bit weird if you guys don't work with companies, but you all deal with companies. You all have relationships with companies. You all use products that come from companies. The way that companies think about this today is they go, nobody wants to have a relationship with a company. Like, I don't trust a company to sell me a product. Like, they're always just trying to sell me something. They don't really care about me, right? And so what ends up happening is companies go through this, like, kind of Baroque dance where they pay celebrities or influencers or they pay really expensive directors and creative people to create really cool commercials. Like they do anything to try and make you forget that they're trying to sell you something. And they become kind of obsessed with this idea of having relationships, but making you not realize that you have a relationship with them, right? And to anyone that's ever bought anything or had, uh, to me, like if you're an entrepreneur, you better believe that sales is the most noble thing you could ever do in life, and I do. I think sales is about truly understanding and caring about your customer's problem more than anything else and then helping them solve it. And like what I preach to my, the folks in my company is like there's people. There's people who have names that are out there and when they take a chance on you, like we've had many people take a chance on us, like you owe it to them to help them like to the point that like your goal is for them to get a promotion because they used your product, right? That kind of thing. And so the long and the short of it is is we said marketing is not a bad thing and sales is not a bad thing. People create products and most of the companies I work with, the people are amazing. We work with L'Oreal a ton. The people are there are amazing. They care. It's beauty, right? Like a lot of you guys look at this and you go makeup, come on. Like those are products that people don't need that you know are overhyped and, and we make people feel bad about themselves to buy it. It's just not true in my experience. I work with people and they care about the product, they care about the consumer, they care like an intense amount, work really hard to try and fulfill whatever need that's filling for their customers and their consumers. And the problem is they don't have a direct relationship. So in the last, this is the way I sometimes describe it, is the last 20 years ago, 30 years ago, L'Oreal was the big bad company. Or anybody, pick, take your pick, was a big bad company because they just wanted to sell you something and commercialism was evil, right? I don't know. I still don't believe that. Shopify actually has a great story about that. I've, I've heard their founders talk like, we're all in cities and here together today because of commerce. Like, I actually think it's a big part of being a human being is commerce. So I, I personally, I'm, you know, I'm a capitalist. I believe that it's okay that you people buy stuff and I think it's okay that companies sell it to you. But 
um, what happens is they don't have that direct relationship with you. And so Facebook and Google are the ones that have the direct relationship with you now. And I think we're seeing in a post-Cambridge Analytica world, and we're streaming this on Facebook, which is weirdly too meta, but it's, you know, I think like what's happening is these, the people who care most about helping you in whatever product you're buying have to go through Facebook, have to go through Google, because this business model 25 years ago on the internet got created where advertising was gonna be the business model of the internet. And so brands, companies broadly, have no relationship with you. You don't go to the brand's website, you go to a retailer, you go to Facebook, you go to Google. And I actually think what's gonna happen is brands are gonna end up, the people that know the most, I'll take an example I know about makeup or skincare is L'Oreal. Right, as an example, they know a ton about that space. If you want an answer, you should be going to them, right? But what do you do? You go to you go to Google, and then you get 15 different like disparate answers. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not, right? And I think what's going to happen is, and what conversational marketing is about, is it's about letting a brand have a direct relationship with their customer, get to know them, help them, talk to them. Um, I think that online today, there's tons of things. If you go buy, you know, a, a plastic cup like that, you don't need to talk to something to get the best advice or batteries. But if you're going to buy something like furniture, you're going to buy a car, you're going to buy makeup, or you're going to buy jewelry or a watch or really nice glasses, right? Like whatever, you're probably going to talk to somebody or get some help in that, right? Those glasses look really expensive. They look super cool, right? Somebody probably sold those to you. Right? And they probably went, that looks really good. And you know what? Those glasses probably, from a pure cost of goods, aren't worth what you paid for them. But you feel really good about them because you know you look cool because someone helped you find them. And you feel good about how much you paid for them because that person sold you. And they made you feel good. And good sales does that, right? And so conversational marketing is, is about bringing that experience to online. I think about the web and e-commerce as like stores with shelves with tons of products and nobody to help you out. And so what we've been trying to do is actually just provide that help in a conversational way to you know, talk to people and help them through certain types of purchases. And it turns out makeup and skincare and that kind of thing has turned out to be a place that it really is helpful for people. Wow. So basically, you mentioned that um, you have customers like L'Oreal. Um, what led you to serve customers in the beauty industry? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of you guys would go like, I have a customer in mind, I have a problem in mind. The other thing that happens though is people find you, right? So um, I had this, I was using this acronym, it's cutesy and probably not that useful and I probably fell in love with it because of my idea, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Which is, uh, I, I use this acronym GRACE, right? It stands for Guidance, Recommendation, um, God, am I gonna forget the A? I had a long day. Um, <laughs> Advice, guidance, recommendation, advice, consultation, expertise, right? And these are the kinds of things that I think is missing from digital e-commerce right now, which is you don't get any help, you don't get any guidance, you might get a little bit of recommendation. Nobody's there to really give you honest, helpful advice. The consultative part of it, which is like, let me try it on, like, so not even necessarily conversational stuff. Um, and just really the notion of getting access to an expert who is impartial, who can actually help you figure out what you want and need, is sort of the words that we were using. And what ended up happening is a lot of beauty customers actually found us from that. Like, I didn't know anything about the beauty market, like, at all. And we kept getting this inbound from beauty customers. We, we would out, eventually we got to the point where we were asking them, like, why are you guys interested in us, right? And there was this element of, you know, that was, it turns out that if you walk in for any of the women, you know, some men who wear, you know, beauty products, um, if you walk into a Sephora or an Ulta or a Pharma Pre or whatever, like, 
those are almost always staffed up with skilled, knowledgeable people, right? And so the problem is they are trying to sell you stuff. And so there's a little bit of a lack of, we did a research study that showed two thirds of people don't want to talk to anyone in a store, but they still need help. And so what they're on is Google, Sephora, you know, Amazon, but most of that is just reviews. And so if you think about like the state of e-commerce, like it's, yeah, you can buy anything and you make your choice on a review, which is useful, but it's not like, it's far from the whole picture. So I just, I look at that and I go, there's so much innovation to be done. And so beauty companies found us, approached us and said, hey, we think this is really interesting to kind of digitize, you know, the, the advisor that can help our consumers. So they found us and, and then what we did is we went, hey, this is interesting. We can actually solve a real problem for these people and we really focused on that vertical. Like we almost, we sell almost, not, not quite exclusively to just that one vertical. So I think that's an important, like if you guys are creating companies, there's a very famous book, Crossing the Chasm. It would preach exactly this stuff. And I found it to be extremely, extremely helpful to, to, and focusing to focus on one vertical. It's very tempting when you're creating tech to go, well, it could do this and it could do that and it could do this, but it's actually really focusing to go and really, really narrow. And what you find out often when you build really narrow to one vertical is that when you do then finally poke up your head and go look elsewhere, you often find you built better software than the person who was thinking horizontally the whole time and trying to build something for everybody. Very cool answer and very aspiring. Um, with the recent development of AI, and uh, a lot of um, opinions about the future of work with how AI is growing. Can you give us your opinion about um, what AI can do and what it cannot do? I mean, I think it's, <laughs> it's gonna do a lot less than people think in the short term, and this is the sort of Bill Gates answer, right? And a lot more in the long term. I mean, I think about it like this, and this is somebody will blow this up on Facebook too, but it's, it's, I think about it in the broadest terms, like right now, I think there's a few things that are almost for sure, like self-driving cars seems almost for sure, but the timeline on that is way less sure, right? Certain people tell you that's two to five years, other people say it's 10, other people say it's 20, right? So I think, but I think just there's so much goodness in that because you've got millions of these things data collecting all the time and then they phone it back home and it, the system gets smarter and it's a fairly like structured system for the most part. It feels like something that is going to happen for sure. So I feel like self-driving cars is for sure happening. There's a ton being done in like medical diagnostic and drug creation, like anything where there's already a ton of data like x-ray data or or drug creation data, like there's just, all of that stuff is gonna be, I think medicine is gonna be transformed in terms of the speed at which um, treatments and drugs and, and diagnoses get, get created. So I think we're all gonna be driving to really amazing hospitals and self-driving cars. That seems like almost inevitable. Probably won't be hospitals, but whatever. Um, the other thing though is we're for sure gonna be talking to more stuff, right? Like how many of you guys have a smart speaker in your house right now? God, you guys are like, Luddites for a bunch of tech people, or you have no money. I'm going to assume it's the latter. Um, putting it all into the company, good for you. Um, they're like 79 bucks. Um, anyway, so that's the fa one of the fastest growing categories you know out there right now. And frankly, they don't do a lot. They play music and set timers and that kind of stuff. But I think we should all look at that and go like always on speakers with far field microphones and incredibly accurate speech recognition in our houses is a that's a big deal so i think talking to stuff 
that's just one of those sci-fi dream things too. Like we are going to keep banging away on that problem until we get it, which is why I dedicated my career to it. Like, let's be honest, most of this stuff is terrible, right? Like, and like, it's easy to break our stuff too. Like, I'm not gonna claim that we have something that is unbreakable. The point is we focus on the business problem part of it. So we can get to that later. But I think self-driving cars, medical stuff, um, and, and talking to computers is gonna be massive. And then I think we really have to watch out for all the scary applications of it, you know, like a lot of you guys probably saw the whole thing where it was a joke, but it's not a joke, like autonomous drones with facial, facial recognition and guns on them, like that kind, of met, that kind of application is really freaky to me and we need to watch out for it. Um, there's a million more things that are gonna get done, but I think like I'm mentoring the Techstars AI cohort right now, and like when you look at it, they do fall, I think maybe the last one is some kind of industrial, um, optimization, like old school stuff. There's a really cool company in the current Techstars cohort that's doing stuff around optimizing uh, like old coal powered, you know, product, like power plants. Like I think you're gonna see a lot of that stuff also get, and I think that falls into medical, like medical transport and you know, old industrial factories. And then you look at weapons and all that kind of stuff. Like there's, there's gonna be a lot of areas that I think are just gonna be obvious, but um, it's a lot of data. Anywhere that has a lot of data and a lot of money is where you're gonna find things solved. And the conversational stuff to me is almost the most aspirational cool part because it's not obvious what the business application of that stuff is always all the time, right? And so I think that to me is like human beings aspiring to building stuff for the sake of building stuff in a sense. Like I wanna talk to technology. Like that's almost like this striving thing that we've been doing for, you know, as long as we've been humans as thumbs and technologists. We've been, I think we wanna to talk to our technology and commune with it, which is why I think right now, touching it is as close as we've gotten and that's why we've had a 10 year iPhone cycle because we all wanna be closer to tech. I mean, we're all just building robots to replace ourselves, we know that, so. So let's get to the hot topic, your company. Um, you have a pretty amazing and well-experienced team. Uh, can you speak about how and why are you the ones solving this problem in terms of the team that you have and the background that you have? It's a super, that's a super important question, right? Like if you guys are, that should be, um, I know it's not the question you're asking, but to the entrepreneurs in the room, like less about me and more about what you guys can do. Like that question of why are you the team to solve this problem at a seed or pre-seed stage is like the question, right? It really is. Like, it doesn't matter what anyone says at a pre-seed angel like level, they're only investing in you. And so having a really good answer to that is a really, really important thing, right? Um, most people don't. And the, the wrong answer, by the way, is because I'm super passionate about it. Like everybody's super passionate about it, right? Like that's why Working in one area on conversational AI for 15 years allowed us to get our company, you know, we raised 2.6 in our, in our seed and then 8.3 US, both US in our A. And like we raised the seed with like not a line of code written, right? And, and what I think the lesson in that is, is if you actually are credible enough and your team is credible enough and you've actually, then people are funding you in that stage, right? And so, what it was is, you know, my co-founding team has over 50 years of experience building conversational AI solutions that we were at the top two companies in the world. Like these are still the most important companies in conversational AI ever until Google, Facebook, or Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft probably, um, which was Nuance and Tell Me, right? So Tell Me was uh, 
acquired by Microsoft for $800 million or something, still like of all the acquisitions, you could rump up every conversational AI acquisition of the last 10 years, it probably wouldn't fit inside of the Tell Me acquisition. And so we were a super credible team, right? I have the founder CEO of Nuance who brought the company public on my board, I have the chief creative officer of Tell Me on my board, I have a board member from Adobe as a board observer, um, I have you know Richard Socher who's put in money, who's the chief scientist of Salesforce. Like all, so I think the lesson I think there is always um, so we have 50 years experience, team is credible, we've dedicated our careers to this problem, we clearly care about it, and failure will like hurt us on like a spiritual level, right? Like how bad conversational AI can be sometimes is like personally offensive to me, like I'm, I really wanna make it better. And I think 15 years, 18 years of your life now is like putting your money where your mouth is, and my co-founders are in a similar boat. The second thing is like outside third-party validation, like that's actually one of the things you guys can all do is go find someone, like make a list of the top five people in the world that you, would want to, that you would want to have on your website with a quote saying how great your company is and how much they believe in you. Like literally the top five in the world, not the people you can get to, like literally the top five people, the people that you would l just die if you were in front of, like you'd be so stoked. Like those are the people, make that list. Now then make a list of another five people that you can get to and then try really hard to get to the first five and you know, if you end up going to the next five. So we had really good third-party validation too, right? Um, and then was the product, and, and we, you know, I sh I, I'll be cagey on the names here, but I showed one of the big four conversational AI tech companies in the world our platform a few weeks ago, and the guy was like, this is, this is, like I, this is better than what we're building. Like, I've been trying to get my team to build something like you guys have built, but they don't believe it. And part of the reason is even at Google or Amazon or Microsoft or Facebook or IBM or whatever, any of those companies, most of the people there haven't worked on conversational AI as long as we've worked on conversational AI. So we've like, this is the fourth platform we've built in, in as you know, the, the career that we've had. So, you know, team, third party validation, and it's not validation. It's also mentors and people around you who can help you. Um, you definitely have to have an interesting product and, and, and vision for how you're going to do something different and better than other people are doing it. And then the last is any kind of traction, right? And so that was a big, like we raised our A round basically on, you know, a few big deals, you know, that we had gotten and, you know, early customers taking big bets on us like L'Oreal, like National Bank of Canada you know, like Cody, others. And so th those are sort of, to me, the four things that A, put us in a position where we can do this stuff, but also is I think there's really like solid lessons for entrepreneurs in that, which is who are you, who around you, who's around you and who believes in you, what is your product and your sort of unique value prop that you guys are bringing in the product level and your unique, unique vision and insight you have. And then finally, like what traction do you have? And Almost all of you guys, if you're starting companies, have none of those things, right? And so I always say, like, pick two and try and, like, nail that before you go fundraise, right? Like, get somebody good on your board or as an observer, or as an investor, do something that blows minds from a product demo perspective, although that's the most dangerous one. That's the one you always want to go to, and it's the one that's least likely to happen. You know, but, like, pick two and then go out. But if you can nail one or if you can nail at least two of those, you can probably raise a seed, right? And then don't give too much of your damn company away if you're raising angel money. I've talked to a few people lately and like there are scummy angels out there. Maybe not even scummy, but like dumb. They'll take too much of your company and then you'll be in trouble later. So don't do that. Come talk to me after about like, re do the research. Like how much company do people, um, do they give away at each stage? And don't give away too much at that angel stage. So you deal with conversational uh, marketing. Can you speak about the history of that industry, where it came from and where it's going based on what you're working on right now? Conversational marketing or conversational AI? Conversational AI. 
Um, yeah, it's long, man. It's uh, I alluded to much of it. So uh, I'm probably I, I, it predates me even as ancient as I am. Um, the the uh, but a lot of this stuff came out of SRI. So there's actually some Kurzweil stuff. Right? Everybody knows Kurzweil, singularity stuff. He actually was one of the early guys, did some stuff. Um, but really, the main company that's out there was Nuance. Nuance spun out of SRI. Ron Crone is uh, the, the founder and CEO of that company, brought it public on my board. I'm really good friends with him. He's a great guy. And that's one of those things. Like, now he's my friend, but like, he blew my mind when it was like, you know, I could do business with him. That, that stuff happens too, which is cool. But it's, they, they were at Stanford Research Institute. And SRI is a famed and fabled research institute, you know, that has, uh, I think the mouse came out of there before it went to park, like just tons of stuff, right? And uh, I think links back to DARPA money and all kinds of stuff. Like, but it, they, there was this strong investment. I think there may be like a lesson in Canada. Like, I think, I don't know that we have an institute. Maybe it's Mila now. I don't know. But it's like SRI just, Tons of failures came out of there too, but like the the ones that hit like hit huge, right? And so they and they had a famous entrepreneur in residence kind of program, and I think Ron went through that. And so speech recognition came out of that. And speech recognition, like there's there's three major components to this stuff, right? There's like turning the audio into text, right? So the transcription, the audio to text, the speech recognition part of it, and then the text into some kind of understanding, right? So pay my credit card bill, sort of classic example, right? You've got to turn that audio into text that literally is pay my credit card bill, and then you need to know what that means, which is that I want to pay my bill, and that the type of bill I want to pay is a credit card. And so those fir the first one got fixed first, speech to text, right? But then everyone realized, as amazing as that was, you couldn't actually do that much with it in the early days. There was like one in every five words was wrong back then, which is miserable. And like now it's about one in 20 words, maybe even a little bit less, one in 25 words is wrong. And so solve speech recognition, then you solve natural language understanding, NLU, which is the, the meaning. That's pretty good now. Like you can go out there and find stuff. We built our own because we had some ideas of how we could do it better, but most of that stuff works. And then the problem though, and this is why most of this stuff is dumb as a bag of hammers, right? Um, uh, one data point that you guys might find interesting, like Siri, which I, I know you all know is like you never use. How, like, who doesn't use Siri? Are you guys really? Is this boring? I'm going home if this is boring. Um, nobody uses Siri. It, it, rhetorical question, right? And it's like Apple recently talked about they have something like two, 100, 200 billion devices out there, and then they said they do 10 billion requests a month to Siri. So you guys do the math. That's not good, right? And how many of you accidentally hit it, try and hit it when you're typing, right? So that pretty much accounts for the entire usage. So that's why I always say to people, I spent the first half of my career working on shit that everyone hates, the, the over the phone stuff, and then I spent the second half working on stuff that nobody used. And that allowed me to raise $11 million. So you guys all have hope. Um, and so uh, the, <laughs> I'm losing the track <laughs> of the question. Um, yeah, so what, what worked? And so the last part and the reason that stuff is dumb is because you can say almost anything and we can understand a lot of things, but the ability to actually do it is where everything breaks down. Because you guys are, you know, a lot of you guys are here at, at Le Wagon doing your programming stuff. Like at the end of the day, there's no magic. You need to integrate with something to do something. And the ability to just code those integrations becomes the blocking point. You just can't code enough integrations to make the thing do what you want it to do or answer the question you want it to answer or whatever. So that's sort of where this stuff is at right now. You can turn almost any audio into text. 
You can turn almost any text into some kind of meaning, um, and then the problem falls down on what does that meaning mean, and what is what do you want it to do, and then it just goes sorry, you know. And so, there's a lot of work to do on this stuff, and that's 20 plus year old technology at this point, right? So you think about some of these things like they're going to take a long time. But converse speech is different. Like I'll, I'm going to try and make you guys laugh. So my serious, you're going to laugh face. My dad is not going to believe I'm going to say this on the internet. So pot is legal in Canada now, right? Um, you guys have no time to do that because you're all entrepreneurs. Um, and you have no money, apparently. Maybe that's why you don't have any money. Um, so anyways, my dad used to be an undercover police officer, colloquially known as a narc, right? And so he, and like crazy stories, and used to be undercover and do all this stuff. And so I said to someone the other day, Right? Just, we were just chatting, and I said, I can't believe my narc dad bought legal weed on the internet. <laughs> Come on, that's funny. And so, and the point is, I went, I just turned, I had this realization, I said, literally no human being in the history of the universe, 13 plus billion years, has ever said that sentence. And any language in the universe, no, hum no, no being of any kind has ever said that sentence, right? It just hasn't happened, because it's only been for about 13 seconds that any of those things could be true. Right? Like, Narc Dad is, you know, 60 some odd years old, but like, legal weed internet, that's like done, right? And so that's the problem with language is like, you guys can all say something right now that has never been said in the history of the universe, and that's a pretty hard problem. So that's why this is a fun place to be. And, you know, I think it won't get solved in my lifetime, and it probably is close to general AI to solve the problem for real, but it's a worthwhile problem. Talking to tech is, is cool, and there's lots of cool problems that can be solved in the meantime with it. So. That totally didn't answer your question. <laughs> um, about Automate, your company, um, can you explain your business model? We're going to segue from Narc Dad's legal weed to business model. Um, okay, so another lesson in here, my company name is Automat. Always ask 10 people your company name, because especially in Quebec, where like, it's, it almost sounds like a French name. I didn't come up with it that way, right? So ask people your name because then they'll mispronounce it and it sucks and it's super annoying. So Automat, um, business model. This is interesting. Um, we're mostly B2B, I'm, but this is like, I'm a B2B guy. I love working with customers. I love doing sales with customers. Um, I love helping them, right? So we're not a consumer play at all. Um, I, I know nothing about consumer. I think consumer's really hard. And I think if you're starting, a, I mean, the data's all out there too. It's way easier to start a B2B startup. There's a lot more money out there. If you feel compelled to do consumer, all the power to you. But so we're B2B at the most fundamental business model level. And then we have two, two components to this. And this is also one of those just like, honesty moments where it's not as good as I would love to be able to tell you in the sense that we, we have two components. I would love to tell you we are just a perfect 100% SaaS business where people just come pick up our software and use it and we just make boatloads of money, right? The reality is, and I think the reality for almost any B2B enterprise software play is we have a like, healthy amount of services that goes into delivering services, meaning like human people that don't scale and you know, are expensive. They're all awesome people. Um, you know, we have a healthy amount of services based in, uh, in our go-to-market, right? So meaning customers can't pick up our software, go build an awesome outcome that gets them a business result. We need to put people in the middle to help them do that. Now, the good news, I mean, that almost always happens or very frequently happens in, in SaaS business models and B2B anyway. Um, but what's good about it is you get in the middle, you work with your customer, you really understand the problem, you don't fob it off to someone else. Um, and so we get paid by our customers to build this stuff for them, and then they pay us a SaaS license fee for the platform that it runs on. And we're starting to see now, you know, three, almost three years in, 
Um, we're now starting to see customers say, hey, we'd really like to get our hands on that. Like, we'll show it to them. We'll, like, they see it and they're like, we'd love to get our hands on that awesome platform that, you know, big company X guy said that's way better than what we have, you know, for our platform. And so I think it's trending in the right direction in terms of, you know, getting to the point where people can build conversational AI solutions inside a company. Like, when Facebook started, right? Like, there was no social media coordinator, social media manager, a person that knew how to do ad buys and all that kind of stuff and create content for Facebook inside of banks and telcos and insurance companies and beauty companies. Now they all have that. And so there is a natural process of creating software and, and getting it to the point where it's simple enough so that people can use it inside of companies. We're starting to get that point. But two things. We get paid for services. We get paid for the platform. Very cool business model. And who are your competitors? In, your, in the space that you're in? Um, I, this is like that bad answer you should never say. I have no competitors. Like it's, it, that's not true. There's, a, there's 250 um, cruddy chatbot companies out there right? that have no tech and that are built on other people's stacks and have no money and they're all going away. But you know, they are gnats and they, they, sometimes it's, it, it's hard for a customer to see the difference sometimes between you and them and that other stuff. So they're annoying that I've got a th maybe a thousand, I don't know. It was, I asked a VC, a VC told me like two years ago, there's 250 companies we're tracking in this space, right? There's been nothing grosser than chat, like chatbots, that's the worst, right? Um, but like part of what we build is chatbots for sure. I'm not actually ashamed to say that because they actually work. So one thing we didn't talk about, which I want to say before we go into this question is like we're getting 250% higher average revenue per user when someone chats with one of our things. People chat with them for on average anywhere from uh, generally between five and eight minutes. The lowest we've ever seen is three minutes. The highest we've ever seen is 11 minutes. We ask people explicit questions at the end of that. How did you like chatting with me today? I loved it, I hated it, it was so-so. We see, I've never seen anything lower than 81% of I loved it. And we've seen as high as 91%, usually clustering around the middle. And so, and then all that stuff that we're collecting, that they're telling us, we're able to use to personalize the experience. So we're not, using a cookie on a search term or a thing you liked. How many of you guys have gotten it at, I'm getting it at Nero because you guys are all zero because you guys are all not paying attention, but it's like, how many of you guys have gotten an ad for a product you already bought, you know, in the same month you bought it or whatever? Like that happens all the time. That is like the state of the art on marketing. It's terrible. It's a waste of money, right? And that's like Google and Facebook's business model. They're, I liked something on Facebook, I followed something, I posted somewhere, or I searched for something, and then based on that, we drop a cookie in your browser, and then when you go to some other site that isn't Google or Facebook, you see an ad for the thing that you searched for, the thing that you liked. And then when you buy it, they don't know that because they're not tied in, so you still see the ad. That's, that's digital marketing. We're saying, hey, have a conversation, decide what you want to tell me. If you tell me something, I'll help you get the right thing. right? And now I know that about you. Now I know really specific stuff about you, and now I can actually, like, help you. This is where it gets iffy because it's like, yeah, I'm still going to target you. I'm still going to try and advertise to you, but now I'm going to do it and I'm going to know something really specific about you, right? And so the stuff works is the point, whether we call it a chatbot or not, it's, it works. But the only reason we got it to work is because we went so vertical and so narrow and like really focused and made our customers successful that way. So no competitor did that, right? All competitors went and built horizontal chatbot platforms. They launched tooling and authoring platforms. They had proper SaaS business models where people could come in with a credit card and give them like five bucks because developers don't pay for anything, right? So, um, and they all built that stuff and they're out there and they're kind of gnats. They, they create weird, um, it's hard for me to sometimes explain to someone why 
they don't want that versus what we do, um, or at least it just creates a lot of uh, confusion. Um, who's the main competitor out there? Um, this is a better, more true answer. It's still kind of jokey. Is the main competitor is not doing anything, right? Like that is really the main competitor. I've never had a conversation with a customer where they said, "I'm not going to do this" or "This is stupid." Every single one has said, "This is amazing. We're definitely going to do this. We definitely see the value in this." But this is a classic B2B problem, like inertia of saying, "But I have to get my new website version live," or "I don't have a CRM yet, so all that data I'm going to collect is not going to be useful to me," right? And then. That idea uh, of we have to do this other thing before we have to do this is very common when you're inventing something brand new in the B2B space, right? Where there's like explicit hard value and you have case studies and you can share it with them and you can show them and you can promise them, all that stuff. A lot of times there's still things where customers have other things they need to do before they're ready for you when you're sort of in that invention. So the real true answer is that the biggest competitor is them not doing anything, which is I think the number one competitor for most B2B startups. There's a handful of decent, credible uh, competitors that have you know some real AI in their platforms and do decent stuff, but in beauty there's like, that's where vertical focus actually really helps. Like nobody is going to win a deal against us in beauty because we know the language, we know the players, we know the people, we know the landscape, we know the products. And importantly, we've tailored our data models and all that kind of stuff to that vertical. So our ability to go out and actually launch something quickly and have it work really well out of the box is true in the verticals we play in. And that's actually a lesson for you guys. Like on the vertical, if you're going to build something in AI, like you're not going to have more data than Google or Facebook or most of these people. Most of the time, there's times where you might find a clever way to get it, but most of the time you're not. So this idea that you're going to go build a horizontal AI solution is usually a bad idea. I think especially in AI, the true innovation is going to happen in really niche verticals where, because Google can't tackle every problem. Facebook can't tackle every problem. You guys can take one problem and really run it to ground and go super deep on it. And I think in an AI space, that's where you want to think about um, in terms of building your solutions. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.